Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Hello again, friends, and welcome one more time to the Our Resolute Hope podcast. I'm John Russin, uh, your host. I'm here again with my dear friend, partner in crime, Pastor Frank Friedman. Man, it was good to see you today. How are you? Yes, it is good to see you, John, and uh, spend some time together to proclaim the truth to whoever signs on and has ears to hear today, especially with this topic. Amen. You are right. And uh, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, you've caught us toward the end of a series that we're doing. We're calling it Finding God in the Gray, The Lonely Path of Pain. And it's based on Frank's newest book. It's out on Amazon. Check it out. And over these past, I don't know, eight, nine weeks, we've been sort of talking our way through the book. But my friend, we're coming to a topic today that is, I think, difficult, painful. Those are kind of starting terms, but they're not good. Gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, maybe more accurate. We're talking about the last chapter in the book, Frank, the chapter that you call When the Pain Feels Too Great. Uh, It's the topic of suicide. My goodness, my friend, most people in the church tend to avoid this topic. Uh, It's kind of taboo, but man, we're going there. I can't imagine, my friend, that we're going to get any more deep in the trenches of life than we will get with this topic. So I got to ask you, why did you put it in the book? Well, you know, John, in the introduction to the book, we talked about that all of us are experiencing things that we were never designed to experience. We live in a fallen world. Uh, We were never designed to experience pain and hurt and sorrow and betrayal. And we addressed in the introduction that we have a lot of ways of trying to cope with our pain. We drugs, alcohol, uh, we distract ourselves through workaholism or recreationalism. And then we addressed in the introduction that some of us hurt so badly that we don't want to live anymore. And at that point, I decided to do a chapter on it. And of course, you know, our wonderful editor, Jenny, she did not like it because it didn't fit the flow of the book. But I told her, I said, Jenny, we have to put this somewhere because hopefully we're going to catch people reading it who are believing that the pain is too great to continue to go on. So we agreed to put it as an addendum. In the beginning, we actually paused and said, look, if you're reading this book right now, please put it down if you're having suicidal thoughts. And we listed a bunch of resources, but we kept it in there for those who make it through to the end. You know, John, one of the points we made in the book is Satan, of course, is the liar. He's the father of lies, Jesus told us. He is a thief. He tries to steal, kill, and destroy. It's his MO. 
Uh, he tries to deceive, if possible, even the elect. He's an arch enemy, but he doesn't come to us as an arch enemy. He's slick. We know that the scriptures say that he comes as an angel of light. And so what he offers us may look good and sound good and even feel good, but it's ultimately going to be destructive. And one of the biggest lies is it will hurt too much. It hurts too much. And that makes pain omnipotent and God impotent. And so it is a lie. But the key is, as the title says, it feels like it's too great. And that's where a lot of people are. Listening to you talk, my friend, uh, my mind goes back to a conversation that you and I have had many times over the years, and I'm sure we've shared it in our podcast since we began them. And that is that uh, one of the main jobs of a church should be to serve as a hospital. We all want to be seminaries. We all want to teach the word, and that's important. But you know, it's broken, sick people who usually walk into those doors. And so I look at, uh, at this topic of suicide as reaching to the most broken, the sickest. And you know, the, the verse in Psalm 147 comes to my mind. Uh, and if you've read Psalm 147, I know you have, but our listeners, this gives basically God's job description. And this is what he says. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And I can't think of any folks more brokenhearted or feeling more wounded than those who are on the verge of taking their life. Yeah, this is very personal for me. I had friends who have taken their life. My nephew took his life. I've had counselees who have made a covenant with me that they would not attempt anything without calling me first. And they have violated that covenant and not given me a shot at them. Most recently, a gentleman in our discipleship group, and he didn't warn any of us, and he made a very abrupt decision. And so it's very close to home. And I guess that's the hardest part, John, is that when people pull that trigger to make that decision, but they don't give anyone the chance to help them. And unfortunately, this is a decision that's uh, irreversible. Uh, it's not like saying, I'm going to go out and get drunk tonight, or I'm going to go out and uh, pay somebody to do sexual things. That uh, It's not that kind of a thing where there's a, a chance for recovery and healing. This is one time and, and you're done. And it, it leaves a, a brutal, hollow feeling in the guts of those who are left behind. And I know in my own heart, I have just felt so wounded that these people I love didn't give me a chance. But that's the problem with this lie that it, it hurts too much. It's that we're going to do anything we can to stop this hurt. Yes, indeed. And listening to your talk, my mind goes back to the many times that our enemy has, has offered me that thought as well. Obviously, since I'm still here, father said, sorry, son, that's a dumb idea. And I, and I listened, 
but he parades that thought in front of everybody. Yes, he does. Trolling, you know, trolling for someone who will nibble on that bait. So this is really common. Maybe not the act of suicide, but the attack of suicidal thoughts. It's very common, I found, in the body of Christ. Yes, John. Recently, I was sharing with somebody, and uh, you know, they've heard my own testimony. In fact, I shared some of it in the book. I had those thoughts. I went to the point of having a plan and carried out the first steps of the plan before God rescued me. And this person came to me and said, you know, that was years ago for you. Do you still have suicidal thoughts? I said, oh, four, five, six a week. (laughs) And they went, really? As if that was something that coming to know Christ as life would put an end to. And no, even though we know Christ as life, it doesn't mean Satan stopped being our enemy. So he's still trying to destroy us. And he'll put those thoughts in her mind. You know, you're driving home and, and you get the thought, once you drive your, excuse me, I said you. One of the things that Bill Gillum did, John, that was so wonderful for the body of Christ is he said, we've got to recognize that the enemy doesn't tempt us in second person singular. He doesn't say, why don't you do this? He comes to us and puts the thought in first person singular. I should turn my car and run into that tree. And he tries to dupe us into thinking that thought is ours. And we know from the New Testament, it's not. Because 1 Corinthians 2 says we have the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ would never say, I should go drive my car into that tree. So coming to know scripture is very important to be able to identify when that wicked, evil deceiver puts those first person thoughts into our mind. That's right. And you mentioned that uh, that person was startled that the thoughts still show up. Well, just think about it. How many times does a car salesman try to pitch you to a car over and over and over again? And every once in a while you buy a car and that's enough to get you uh, to be on his hit list. It worked once, man. It might work again, and this time I might get him to go a little further. So he doesn't stop. You're right, Frank. He really doesn't. Now, I want to begin our time today, brother, with not talking about death, but talking about life. I want to begin with life as a foundation for our conversation. And I go back to Genesis 1, because when God created us, he breathed life into us. You remember those verses. All of us, Christians or non-Christians, it doesn't matter. Every single one of us uh, has the breath of God in us. And this breath of God, this life, is the most fundamental part of us. It's vital to us. And so under normal circumstances, we don't want to lose that life. In fact, I look at it as a one of the fingerprints of God on every single person. Mm -hmm. I remember my friend as a high school student in literature class, and we had to memorize a poem by Dylan Thomas. And that poem is, do not go gentle into that good night. Mm. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. 
And the spirit brought that poem back to me as I was prepping for this podcast. And these thoughts are what he shared with me. That suicide is absolutely foreign to humanity. It's anti-human. It's, it's anti-us. It's anti-John. It's anti-Frank. And he told me that it's the most dishonoring thing we can do to ourselves hmm. because it's so final. We leave no room for redemption. You've mentioned this already. We leave no room for redemption, no room for any restoration, no room for anybody else. And we leave no room for God. Boy, hmm. So it's just such an alien, isn't it? Yes, John. I guess I would first of all mention that when you and I talk about it leaves no room for redemption, we're not talking about salvation. That's right. Because when we put our faith in Christ, we are perfected forever, Hebrews 10, in him. And so suicide is something Christians can commit, but it doesn't mean they're going to hell. I am so angry when I hear these pastors instantly condemn somebody to hell who's a believer because they took their own lives. That's a sin. And Jesus died for our sin. That's a forgiven sin. It was an illegitimate way to go home, but they went home. And so we're not talking about redemption that way. We're talking about redemption relationally to those that we're leaving behind, to those who maybe hurt us. And that pain drove us to make that decision. Or, or we didn't give them an opportunity to rescue us, to, to share their life with us. And it's so final. It leaves so many unanswered questions and just a hollow in your gut for what maybe is the rest of your life when you lose somebody to suicide. And that's what we're talking about when we say they, there's no redemption. We don't get a shot at that, it's, it's over. And that's, I think, why this thing hurts so bad for those yeah. who are left behind. Indeed, you are so right. Not too long ago, I ran across a circumstance. I didn't know this person personally, but I trust what happened. A fellow in a church was serving as an elder, had been an elder for a number of years. And uh, this fellow committed suicide. Shock to everyone. Well, one thing led to another. And of course, the, the backstory begins to come out. And it turns out that this particular brother had struggled with, uh, with alcohol. And when he uh, indulged, when he gave himself over to that, he became very brutal. And the last time he did it, he put one of his family members in the hospital. Mm. And so when he finally came to, so to speak, I use that term loosely, he realized what he had done. And he decided there's no way he could fix this. The only way out was for him just to be gone. So he committed suicide. Mm. So no chance to restore relationship with family no chance to redeem that relationship with uh, with that family member uh, that was the the precipitating event for this uh, no chance for forgiveness no chance for acceptance and no chance for god to bring good uh, out of a nightmare that's mm. what that's what goes through my mind when i think about what's lost yes john and you know, you made um, 
the point that this is so contrary to life. And it, it is. I mean, we were created to live, not to die. And so life by nature fights against death. When my little girl was born and we were told she was going to die, she fought against death because that's what life does. And 23 years later, she says one of her favorite things is to run into those doctors and say, here I am. (laughs) So uh, what would make somebody do something that's so contrary to nature? And, you know, one is the hurt where I think when you hurt so bad, not even the love of your family will keep you here. I think the second is this issue of shame. And shame is a murderer. I'm contemplating with my ministry chairman that (laughs) he's just now finding out about this. But one of the things I'd like to do in the next year or so is write a book with that sort of title, Shame is a Murderer, because I don't think the church understands the power of shame. And then maybe, John, the third thing, and this one saddens me, is that the church has not provided an atmosphere where people can fail. And the church should be the place that people should be able to run to when they're having suicidal thoughts. But the church, unfortunately, judges, criticizes, and condemns those who fail. I remember a pastor I was dealing with, and he had an affair with his secretary. The day he got caught, he was told with guards to pack up his office and leave and never come back. No uh, attempt to restore, to reconcile, to counsel, no uh, any kind of financial provision. It was get out on the street. And, you know, I think the motive maybe behind that is the church is feeling ashamed (laughs) of that man. And, you know, shame is something that God, doesn't possess. He doesn't shame his kids. He disciplines them, corrects their behavior. But shame is, I think, a tool of the enemy. And uh, that's sad. That gentleman you quoted, John, he, he had nowhere to turn. And that's tragic. Well, that's true. As an elder, uh, certainly he has seen the suffering in others. But he felt like there was no option for him within his body, even among his fellow elders. So I guess uh, I will share to with our listeners that if you don't have someone who stands closer to you than a brother, and I'm quoting scripture there, could be a sister, of course, then pray that Father would provide that person for you because we all need that final safe, secure anchor we can turn to when everything else is flailing in the wind. Hmm. And so I'm going to pray right now. Father, I pray for our listeners that they would find that person. And if they don't have one, sir, that you would please bring that person across their path. Because had there been someone like that for this fellow, uh, he might now be on the road to redemption and restoration instead of leaving behind him in his wake 
uh, a devastated family. Oh, John, you know, I had that in my own life. When I was putting my plan into action, I made one desperate phone call. And that person took the phone call, gave it to a man I'd never met. And call, he called me and said, what's going on? And I just said, I, I can't do this anymore. And he prayed with me and encouraged me that he could. And he, that night, I got a knock on my door at 10 o'clock. And he had driven 14 hours to uh, rescue me. Wow. It's uh, amazing. I, I guess the only problem, John, is that there's so few of those people. Yeah. You know, I, I'm just led right now. What's on my heart is maybe to share this passage, John. It's, uh, I shared this with a pastor last week who said that he's a failure and he's not going to be able to minister anymore. I took him to John 21. And, you know, Jesus has been resurrected. He's met with the disciples. He sent them to the Sea of Tiberias. They're fishing. Uh, they're skinny on this. He tells them to cast the net on the other side. They catch all the fish. Peter says, it's the Lord. They, he dives in. And what follows is amazing to me. Peter had failed three times big burly fisherman to a teenage girl, fear around a campfire. So what Jesus, the master does is build a campfire. He's a master in the, and then he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes. He says a second time, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes. And then he does it. That third question, do you love me? See, because Peter's love was in question for self-preservation around that campfire with that little girl. And Peter in exasperation says, yes, Lord, you know, I love you. Obviously saying there, I know I didn't act like it, <laughs> but I do, you know, I do. And, you know, when we look at that, we're prone to ask what happened to, he remembers our sins no more. Three failures, three reminders. And I said, well, the key, my pastor friend is not the three reminders. It was what he did after he adds this phrase after Peter declares his love then feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Three failures and then three affirmations. Peter, in spite of what you did, you're still my guy. Whoa. Yeah. You know, John, whatever this person has done, whatever has been done to them, they can run if they can't find anyone. They can run to God and he will tell them, no matter what you did, no matter what's happened to you, you're my child. And I call that passage Peter's ordination and the ordination really centered on the issue of acceptance, which I believe is a great synonym for grace. And that's what that man did with me so many years ago. He drove 14 hours to minister acceptance and grace. And just to say, I'm in this with you. And it saved my life. Yeah. And boy, we need more people to be ordained into the ministry of acceptance and grace. That's not an ordination that comes easily. For someone to really be equipped, I'm not talking about training or degrees. 
I'm talking about a spiritually equipped, uh, maturely equipped to step into the deep end of the pool like that and to sort through the weeds and to find the source of deception and then to minister truth and life. It takes someone who has been in the bushes themselves, someone who had been drowning in the deep end of the pool and who recognizes the lies and who knows the anchor of the truth uh, mm. to help that person grip onto so they can get out of those weeds, get out of that pool and stand back up on their feet. And Frank, this is where, you know, I hate to, to continually pick on the church, but in, current, in cases like this, uh, we almost have to look at it critically because if we really taught scripture, if we really taught Jesus, shoot, Jesus, during his first sermon, gave his job description, standing up in that synagogue, he says, I've come to heal the brokenhearted. And so if we really want to, quote unquote, follow Jesus, that's what he did. Mm. And I don't see much of that in the body of Christ today. I really yeah. don't. And again, John, I'm like you. I hate to be critical, but part of teaching we know from Scripture is not only to proclaim truth, but to correct error. And I think we've substituted uh, preaching, teaching, and programs for the person of Christ and really laying hold of who he is and who he wants to be to us. He wants to, as you said, bind up the brokenhearted, bring freedom to captives, to exchange garlands of praise for the mourning and the grieving that we do in a fallen world. And that's his job description, and therefore I think it's to be ours. And like you said, only people who have received that can freely give it of life beginning life. And it's the Christian life, uh, the Christ life, not the message. It's not a message, it's a person. And we need to find him and walk intimately with him and let him express who he is through us to others. That's right. Well, I'm gonna stop picking on the church right now, my friend. And I'm gonna ask you, a question, and you raised this point right in the very first paragraph of that chapter. You talk about this, her terrified voice. You use the phrase, her horrific screams, because you want to capture the impact of suicide on the ones who are left behind. You use the words numbing and overwhelming. Uh, can you share a little bit about that from your perspective as a pastor and a counselor, giving us some insight as to what it's like to be left behind? Oh, goodness. The reason I was able to write those words, John, is because I experienced them. I've gotten too many of those phone calls. And they are in such terror when they've called me that someone they love has done this, that you can't even make out what they're saying. All you know on the receiving end of that phone is that tragedy has occurred. 
And you have to tell them to please take a breath and try to share again so I can understand what has happened. And when I hear the news, as I heard it from my sister, as I heard it from friends who told me of friends, the only way I can describe it, maybe the best way, John, is it's, it's knee buckling. It just, it drops you to the floor. For those on that receiving end, I don't know if they ever really heal from that. I, I'm, I'm of a persuasion that they kind of walk like Jacob with a limp for the rest of their lives. Fortunately, they don't carry that past the grave. But I just don't know if that's a pain that we ever really get over. I think with Jesus, we get through it. Right. Now, it's common, at least thoughts of suicide, as we talked about, are common in the church. And sometimes uh, the thoughts are kept to the mind of the person and they do it without telling anybody. But oftentimes there are signs. And in the, in the minutes we have left in this episode, I'd like to take a little time to begin to educate our listeners uh, regarding what to look for. Because when they walk through an assembly of believers, some percentage of them, maybe a large percentage, uh, are really struggling. And a few of those might actually be contemplating doing this. So I want to talk about what to look for, to give our listeners sort of a tool as they walk through their life and they meet people. What are the real signs that these folks might be serious? I know a lot of people mention suicide in a passing sense that's not really serious, but sometimes they are. And you gave in your book a couple of signs that you thought were truly telltale indicators. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to list these three and then ask you to comment on them. Uh, the first one you said was, there's a strong sense of control when you talk to them. They want to do things on their terms. They're not really flexible. They're not really easily persuaded. The second one is that they seem to have a determined look, a strong mindset, that their mind is set like stone on what they're going to do. And then the third one is that they not only have a plan, but it's a detailed plan. They know the how, the when, and the where, and the why pretty clearly. So talk to us, if you will, about that. Explain how to look for it. Uh, give us pointers so that we can hear when the Spirit nudges us about a, a person who might be struggling. Yes, John, and I think I would do that with a clarification first. Okay. That there's no way for any of us to be sure that someone is going to do this, so that when, if it happens, uh, none of us should say, I should have known because people are very impulsive. They can do this without giving any of the warning signs. And none of us should ever feel the guilt of another's decision to end their life. Uh, that is a decision they are making. It's not one you are making and you are not responsible for that. So let's clarify that. Uh, but yes, in my experience, I, what I've seen is I've seen these people 
and I look back after what they've done, they isolated themselves. Uh, They kind of distanced themselves from those that were closest to them. They grew somewhat despondent in a way. I think they were in a way preparing themselves for separation that was going to come. And then I would witness this determined, strong attitude where they wouldn't listen anymore. It was a telltale sign that they had made up their mind. And then it oftentimes as they got closer, and this is a sign that I've recognized and been, the Holy Spirit has allowed us to rescue some of them. Some people will manifest almost a giddiness in a 180 degree from what they've been manifesting. And I think that's the result in their heart of hearts saying, I'm gonna be free of this pretty soon. They've made the decision, they've got their plan. And there's almost a rejoicing that they're going to find a freedom from the pain, albeit an illegitimate one. It's not what God would ever have any of us do, but they're reached a point of uh, excitement almost that their pain is about to be over. And when I see those things, that's when I will ask, have you thought of taking your own life? And when I hear somebody say yes, that Instant second question is, do you have a plan? Because lots and lots of us, we talked about this earlier today, John, we we all sometimes get thoughts of taking our own life. It's the enemy. He's trying to take out as many as he can, but it's quite another thing to formulate a plan. Uh, That's usually somebody who's very, very serious. And we need to really step into that with the same seriousness. Yes. And, uh, Certainly not boldly or confidently because we don't really know what kind of minefield we're walking into, but we do know that we have in us the Holy Spirit who knows everything about everything, and he will give us the wisdom and insight to step in and to minister life uh, as much as possible. Well, you said always be be enough to save the person, but we can step in and trust him to speak Mm -hmm. life through us. You have said the key word, John, anytime we deal with humanity, we should never have a method. Each person is unique. Each circumstance is unique. Everybody has a different past. Everybody's under a different attack from the enemy. Our own flesh is unique and the lies they're hearing is unique. And for us to come at this thing with a method and try to have a checklist is, uh, really incomplete. And in the end, it's, it's going to be impotent. We have inside of us the one who scripture identifies as the counselor. And so I think the key, as you brought up, is to follow his prompting in our spirit. And John, in the book, maybe we'll deal with this next week. But that's how I found this term aside that I like to use. Suicide it just seems so sterile, you know, you look it up in the dictionary, someone who took their life, it's a fact, it's cold. But that's not why I found that people do that. It's, it's nothing cold and sterile about it. It's that they hurt, and they don't want to hurt anymore. And so pain aside is really a much better 
definition of what this thing's all about. They hurt so much, they just want to stop the pain. And that's how the spirit prompted me with the gentleman that allowed us to put his story in the book. When I went out to visit him in the car, I said, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to take my life. And I said, do you have a plan? He said, yes, I do. And that's when the spirit prompted me to say, you don't want to take your life. And I got to be honest, he was belligerent. He was not happy with me. He was, uh, who do you think you are to tell me, you know, better than me what I want. And that's when the spirit prompted those words. I says, you don't want to die. You just don't want to hurt anymore. And he looked at me in shock and just cried and cried. And then when he gathered himself, he looked at me and he said, you're right. I don't want to die. I just want the hurt to stop. And he's still alive to this day. Uh, we talk periodically and he struggles. But he told me when he read the book, the chapter, he said, I don't recognize that guy today. That's wow. not who I am. So he was buying a lie. And the truth has set him free to fight against those lies, which continue to come. Yeah, that phrase, you don't want to die. You just don't want to hurt anymore. You want the pain to stop. Frank, that didn't come from a book. It didn't come from seminary. It didn't come from a step-by-step -step counselor's manual. It came from the counselor, the Holy Spirit, who just had the right words at the right time that spoke life to this individual person. And that's what we've been talking about throughout this series, throughout this entire podcast. It's our dependence on that person who is our life and who wants to be the life of everyone we contact, even those who are so hurting and so desperate that they'll do anything uh, to stop what they're struggling with. And I do have to add a caution here, Frank, we're not talking only about physical pain, although that certainly is a driver. It's emotional pain too. Going back to that story about that elder who took his life because he was physically abusive when he got drunk. Uh, it's not a physical issue. That was an emotional, that was a guilt. That was a shame issue. He just wanted to, he didn't want to live anymore. He was so embarrassed about what he had done. And so the pain can have so many different types of manifestations in our life. And I can't list them all, but I don't need to because I know the balm. There is a balm in Gilead, brother. Mm. And that balm is Jesus Christ. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Wow. Well, my friend, we are out of time for this podcast. We're going to pick this up next time. So listeners, come on back. Frank, any last words before we cut this off today? When you are desperate, and alone and out of hope, there is a person out there who is hope and his name is Jesus. And he says throughout his word that he is near to the brokenhearted and he hears their cry and he will uphold you when you cry out to him with what he calls his strong right hand. Wow. It's Jesus. Yeah. And that applies both to believers 
and to non-believers as well. All right, friends, thank you for listening to this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. I must share that my emotions are kind of turbulent right now because this is a very difficult topic to cover, but we're glad that you've been here with us. We've been chatting through Pastor Frank's book, Finding God in the Gray, The Lonely Path of Pain, and uh, this episode has been the first of several that we'll spend talking about suicide. So if you've got a mind to check out that book on Amazon, uh, visit our website, OurResoluteHope.com. Take a few moments, look around. Uh, We've got a lot of resources there, always adding more. If you've got a mind to, pop us an email. Let us hear from you. Sign up for our newsletter. We'd love to get some feedback. Check out the newest part of our website. We call it our members portal. It's free. And that's where I put on my old dirty clothes and I go up into the attic and I rummage through all the old stuff we've got saved from over the decades of Pastor Frank's ministry. We'll put some of that stuff up there now and uh, we'll put more up as time goes on. And of course, don't forget to follow us on our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and all of the venues that carry our podcast. And as always, we close with this reminder from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, which tells us that we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. Peter, in his first epistle, calls it a living hope. Frank and I call it a resolute hope, a steadfast, immovable, bedrock kind of hope, so that when the world swirls, and you want to end it all, there's a place to grab onto. That place, that hope is Jesus. So today and always, choose hope and choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.